Were you able to admit to yourself the presence of alcoholism in your life? Why not? And what happened when you broke through your denial into acceptance? Welcome to episode 253 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Debbie, Jen, Penelope, and Lucy. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Debbie, Jen, Penelope, and Lucy, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with a seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. Joining me is Pat. Welcome, Pat. Hi, Spencer. Um, you know, you mentioned your surgery in some previous episodes, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are concerned and would like to know how you're doing. Sure. It seems to have gone well. The condition that I was having the surgery for seems to be somewhat relieved. I can't really tell until everything has settled down. And uh, I'm kind of really taking it easy, taking at least a couple weeks off work until the doctor clears me to go back. I'm actually, this is probably relevant to our topic of denial today because I want it to be all better right away, right? And I think yesterday I pushed myself a little harder than was good for me. I thought, well, I can, I can get up and I can walk a couple of blocks to a coffee shop and sit there for a while and actually work done starting to plan for this episode. And later in the day, I, I had a fair amount of pain that probably was related. So this morning when I woke up, I said, you know what, I'm just going to stay here in bed for a while. And I think that denial of the fact that recovery is, and this is recovery, physical recovery in this case is a process. uh, And then I can't push it. You know, I want to push it and, Mm -hmm. and pushing it really doesn't help and probably, probably hurts. I mean, literally hurts, but I'm doing pretty well. Good. And then I'm curious, what made you choose the topic of denial? I mean, that's that's a <laughs> segue right there, what you just gave us. Yeah, actually, but that came after I after I picked the topic. I mean, it was one you had suggested, and, and I'd sort of latched mm-hmm. onto it, I think partly because of a recognition that I had been in some denial relatively recently about something else going on in my life. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. And I thought... And I looked and I said, oh, we, we talked about denial as a topic in episode number four, which we were still calling a pilot episode at that point. And that was in 2012, so five and a half years ago. Figured it doesn't hurt. It's a, it's a great topic. It's something that comes up a lot around the rooms and uh, felt like it was time to do it again. How about you? Why did you put that uh, down as a suggestion? I had read, I think it was in one of my meetings that I went to, May 17th, reading from Hope for Today, really, really hit home. And I was just looking around trying to find my um, my notebook that I wrote my notes in from that meeting because um, I hadn't realized, I hadn't connected those two things until I was just looking at something else and an old email between us. So 
but the May 17th reading from um, Hope for Today really struck a chord, and that was why I brought it up. Do you have that in front of you? I do. Why don't we go ahead and read that, because it, it, that's what sort of you know struck this for you. And then um, I have a reading that uh, I think digs a little bit into denial in particular as, as a symptom and how we have maybe exhibited it. Okay. So this is from May 17th in Hope for Today. Recently, I attended a meeting where the suggested topic for discussion was denial. I was struck by a broader awareness of denial than I had previously imagined. There is a denial of the disease of alcoholism and its side effects. There's also denial of the pain inherent in betrayal, loss, disability, and death. In meditation, I reflected on the way in which my upbringing in the alcoholic family had encouraged me to engage in other subtle, but perhaps equally devastating forms of denial. While growing up, I had used denial to block myself from feeling pain, which also blocked me from experiencing pleasure. Now that I'm in Al-Anon recovery, working my program means letting go of my denial by opening my heart to daily sources of wonder and delight. It also includes practicing gratitude for daily miracles. I now savor the beauty to be found in each day, no matter how fleeting, and I give thanks to my higher power for allowing me to witness it. Another form of denial is thinking I am the sum of my problems and limitations. Thanks to Al-Anon, I have accepted the truth. I am a spiritual being. My denial has been replaced by acceptance of an infinitely larger, more beautiful reality in which I rely on the strength and guidance of a power greater than myself for protection and direction. Yeah, that's great. I like the the different sort of different aspects that it illuminates about denial too. Mm-hmm. So I came upon a reading in the book, uh, how Elanon works in the chapter, it's chapter five, becoming aware in the section heading is recognizing alcoholism. And it starts out with just this statement that is so basic to my experience. Sometimes we don't recognize alcoholism, even when it is staring us in the face. Having lived with drinking for many years, we may have accepted it as normal and never felt overly concerned. Perhaps we envisioned alcoholics as filthy, rag-clad derelicts and never considered that our well-kempt, successful friend or relative might be an alcoholic, even if his or her drinking obviously is excessive. And I was like, that so describes where I was before I came into this program. I grew up with, with moderate drinking. It was not a problem. It was not a big thing. My parents let us as children have small glasses of wine sometimes with dinner. And there was no problem in my household. So drinking was normal in moderation. And as a teenager, I experimented with drinking past moderation and had some uh, negative effects. So usually for myself, I was able to keep it in in moderation. And when I met the person who whose alcoholism brought me to Al-Anon eventually, you know, she was, and this, this is a sign that I look back and say, huh, she was a, a grad student who, you know, barely had enough money to live on. I mean, did have enough money, but it, you know, things were tight, but she had a wine rack in her kitchen in her apartment, which I thought was perfectly normal. I mean, you know, my parents enjoyed a good bottle of wine. I enjoyed a good bottle of wine. 
So didn't seem like a problem. And over the years, I think her drinking became more, but it was so gradual that I didn't really see it happening. And then suddenly there was this point where she would become literally falling down drunk, like at a party. And and I started to be embarrassed about that. And I wanted her to drink less. Uh, I wasn't really thinking about health problems or anything. It just was embarrassing. Right. But I wasn't, I, it didn't feel like alcoholism because like the, the reading says, I mean, there's a little bit of an overstatement. Perhaps we envision alcoholics as filthy rag clad derelicts. And that, I have to say that was my vision of of alcoholism was, you know, the bum with a forty ounce in a in a paper bag sitting under the bridge. That was not the person in my life. You know, the person in my life was well educated, well dressed, had a good job, etc. And you know, alcoholism just the, that word didn't fit there. And also, I think, and this is the more subtle part, I didn't want it to be there. Because I felt inside that if there was alcoholism in my family, that it was due to some failure of mine. Mm-hmm. And so both of those factors sort of pushed me into this attitude of denial that, yeah, there's a problem. She just needs to like drink normally. And that went on for a long time. And even when she started saying alcoholism, I wasn't ready to accept that word. And so moving forward here on page 22, this paragraph also hit me. Perhaps we were aware of an alcoholic's denial, but never realized that it could be a characteristic of everyone who is affected by the disease. Just as many alcoholics insist they don't have a problem and refuse to talk about their drinking, many friends and family members do not acknowledge that any problems exist. We truly cannot see, hear, feel, or otherwise perceive what may be readily apparent to others. Ironically, because our entire lives are wrapped up in the disease of alcoholism, we can fail to notice its presence. And that paragraph also speaks directly to my experience that I was focused on the symptoms. I was focused on the things that were happening that I didn't like. And I was trying to figure out how to make those symptoms not happen without understanding, without admitting to myself that they were symptoms. Mm-hmm. See what I mean? Yeah. And, and so yeah. the denial was really strong. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, there came a point where I guess it became obvious to me that there was alcohol, that it was alcoholism. And I think, you know, that happened when she, she started to try to do something about it. Mm. She went to, a, I think, a couple of outpatient programs over a period of two or three years. They would bring bring us in, give us some lectures and stuff, friends and family day, right? Mm-hmm. And I think I started to understand that maybe this really was alcoholism and that alcoholism was not just the bum with the bottle. And I remember distinctly in one of those centers, one of those treatment centers, 
they had a poster with, you know, a collage of faces. I don't know, 20 or 30 faces in a, in an array. And the title was something like the faces of alcoholism. And they all looked like just ordinary people Mm. that sort of surprised me, I think. And I was like, really that, nah, that's not true because if that's true, then she has to be an alcoholic, right? Denial. (laughs) (laughs) And when I really faced it, and, and this is really hard for me to untangle because that period of time before I came to Al-Anon, there was so much going on emotionally that I can't really say when, you know, when I might have turned the corner to saying, oh, yes, this is what it is. Um, I know that by the time I walked into my first Al-Anon meeting, I had admitted to myself that she was alcoholic and had admitted to myself that this apparently was something that I couldn't fix because that's why I came to my first meeting. How do those readings speak to you? You know, going back to the start, the reality for me was my husband, who's the primary alcoholic in my life, did a fabulous job hiding his drinking. It's much like the frog in the pot as the pot slowly gets hotter and hotter and the frog, poor frog, doesn't realize it. Yes. I was living in this terrible household of of chaos and and anger and irrationality, and I didn't understand it. And I was really poorly equipped. I married pretty young. I had my first child at 24. I was really poorly equipped, and, and I honestly mean it when I say I am a slow learner. I've been a slow mature, and I had no business having kids or a family that early. Boy, pile that on top of, of what I now know was an alcoholic household, and it was very confusing. And of course, it was years where my own disease was progressing. My own need for recovery was was magnifying and amplifying. There wasn't denial there in that, you know, I, I was thinking about denial. And it's like, I think it's smack dab in the middle of the three A's. To me, you, you kind of have to have an awareness to be able to deny something. You know, and I didn't even have an awareness for the longest time. And then finally, you know, once I had an awareness, then the denial kicked in. Then I was making up excuses for him. I was making up stories for him and, you know, isolating. So there was a transition point there from just a lack of understanding to this really deep abiding suspicions suspicion, but no proof. I, I had felt that I needed some kind of proof. And I finally one day had something come across my desk from our patient education group. And they said it was for families of alcoholics. And I read through the brochure, the whole thing was about AA until the very last paragraph was about Al-Anon. And I called and I went to that first Al-Anon meeting, not knowing at all whether my husband was an alcoholic. I couldn't put that name on him. I just knew that I qualified because someone's drinking bothered me. That was how I came to that. But, you know, for me, there was an awareness for a long time. And, and the denial was pushing it away, rationalizing it, making up stories, managing all the, all the disease behaviors and acceptance, that second A, 
acceptance was the was the way out of that. And and you said the word acceptance how many times when you spoke just now? <laughs> that was the key to to the initial problem. Mm-hmm. And that was my my denial of there being a problem. But what was really a relief also when I got to Al-Anon is that message that I didn't have to know that he was an alcoholic. I didn't have to have proof. I didn't have to bottle count. They specifically told me not to bottle count. Mm. They said, you know, it was about behavior and where behaviors acceptable that were in the household, you know, and what were my own behaviors and that I could really latch on to that made sense to me. I could address behaviors as being acceptable or not acceptable. And the word boundaries, oh my God. You know, I was in my 40s when I came to Al-Anon. I lived 40 plus years without knowing that such a thing existed as a boundary. Had no clue. So that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of how my denial fit into the beginning of my story. You know, we kind of dove right into examples, and I think that may be great. How do you understand the word denial just as a as a thing, as a, as a word, as a concept? Well, you know, it's a hard one for me to grab onto. I really, I did a lot of thinking about that word when I was walking the dog this week. I don't think you can deny something if you don't have an awareness of it, you know? And, and that was, that's kind of the bottom line that denial is, it's a lack of awareness, but there are some other subtleties to it. Denial, one, is is a way of avoidance, is another, lots of A words there. Hmm. But avoidance, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid finding out about myself. I'm going to avoid examining who I am. I'm going to avoid thinking that maybe there's something I can work on. And by being in denial that I am not necessarily the person that I think I am or the person that I want to be. And that's that, to me, is the next, that's the biggest denial. Because once I'm in Al-Anon, that's the next step is, is digging down into who I am and really working on, on not turning away, not hiding, not pretending, not, not being too afraid, not being too, too afraid to accept that, you know, there are aspects of myself that aren't perfect and that I may not like. And then another thing I thought was really interesting was that I was I was listening to music and I realized another thing that's denial is to to withhold. I might have denied sex from my spouse <laughs> back in the day. But you know to deny something is to withhold and and that can be you can deny something from somebody else if you have something and they want it. But the other thing is I can deny things for myself. And that was also present in my disease was I didn't deserve things. I denied myself, you know, clothes or food or, or whatever it was because I didn't think I deserved it because I, you know, it's, I had to do something else first. I had to be Everything had to be done first. Everything had to be finished first. Everything had to be perfect first before I could allow myself whatever this kind of treat was. Specifically, I think of I wanted to quilt really badly. It was this just real drive and creative force. And I wouldn't allow myself to quilt 
until the whole house was completely clean, you know, and of course, then I never quilted. And I was denying myself that joy and that, that development of that part of myself. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at that. I hadn't thought about that. I did quick little internet search and uh, found this definition from Merriam-Webster of denial. There's a bunch of definitions, and a couple of them hit what you've already said. The specific one, I think, that when we usually talk about denial in Al-Anon, we mean this psychology definition, which is a defense mechanism in which confrontation with a personal problem or with reality is avoided by denying the existence of the problem or reality. And then they have the phrase in denial, refusing to admit the truth or reality of something unpleasant. Uh, example is a patient in denial about his health problems. And I think I want to circle back to that one a little bit later too, in the ways in which I've been experiencing denial recently in my life. Mm-hmm. But this defense mechanism, and I think that gets to, was it the, the reading in hope. No, there's another reading from Hope for Today that you picked out it's from May 2nd. Hope for Today is the daily reader. It's May 2nd, page 123. Growing up in an alcoholic environment, I had no idea just how unclearly I viewed the world around me. I did what I had always done, just as my parents and their parents before them had done. There didn't seem to be any alternative way of looking at life, and quite frankly, I saw no need for one. Nothing was wrong. I was fine. And the fine is in quotes there. Then the cumulative effects of living around alcoholics brought me into Al-Anon. For me, coming into the program has been like going to an eye doctor. Like an ophthalmologist, Al-Anon constantly tests my vision. It gives me choices about how I want to perceive my life. There is no one prescription fits all view. I am free to wear the lenses that fit most comfortably right now and to switch to a different pair when I am ready. For a while, I berated myself for having been so blind. I hated denial and considered it the worst character defect. In the interest of being gentle with myself, I gradually came to understand that denial could be a wonderful thing. It kept me alive until I was ready to face the truth, my truth. Now I believe when I'm ready to face more truths, my higher power and the Al-Anon program will lift the veils that cloud my vision. To see that bright light before I'm prepared for it could possibly blind me further. And I think, again, in relation to this definition of defense mechanism, the thought for the day is quite relevant. It says, denial can be a shock absorber for the spirit. I can respect and be grateful for that survival mechanism, but I'll not hang on to it longer than necessary. Yeah, I tend to view, as this person says, I tend to view denial as being a negative thing, something that I should never have. Should, and there's that word. That's always a dangerous word, should. But maybe there are times when it's really important because I'm I'm not ready for the reality and I need to prepare myself before I can actually accept what is. Well, and, and honestly, you know, it's all about, I mean, from here, once once I'm moving out of the denial of the disease, once I'm accepting that I have my own disease and I have to work on my own recovery, the the work from there of the program is is what it's all about and what allows that. I mean, it's we talk about it being a gentle program and it has steps and the steps are really teased out and they're teased out for a reason. You know, they are all 
gently progressive that lead us towards the ability to to see ourselves in a truer light. And that's part of those promises of Al-Anon. You and I talked about it earlier, and maybe you could quote it for us. Do you have that right there? I do. I do. This is from the book From Survival to Recovery. The, The subtitle of the book is Growing Up in an Alcoholic Home. And there's a chapter near the back of the book. It's the first chapter in the section titled Healing Broken Childhoods. The chapter is titled Joy is Our Birthright, which is a wonderful title. Just that concept, that joy is my birthright, because sometimes I certainly don't feel that way. Towards the end of that chapter, there's a paragraph that starts, if we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives can be transformed. And then there's, depending how you count them, 12 or 13 statements about how our lives can change. And the one that I think you're referring to here says, our sight, once clouded and distorted, can clear enough for us to perceive reality and recognize truth. Yeah, I mean, that is definitely an experience that that I had in the program. Mm. And it sounds like you did too, because you you picked up on that and suggested it. Yeah, it's... You know, it is only in working the program. It's only in having a sponsor. It is only in going to meetings and and following the the steps that I would ever have been able to look at myself enough to really see who I was and what I was doing, and and both the good and the bad. It, it's just like the reading said. If someone had given me a book and said, "This is it, Pat." Here you are. This is all of you. You know, I could not have dealt with that. I probably would have called, crawled in a hole and just disappeared for the rest of my life. I It would have been, it would have broken me. I couldn't have tolerated that. But, you know, being able to come to it gradually because we're in the program is is what the program is all about. It's It's the only way I know. I don't know very many people who could tolerate that. Just incredible truth of themselves just revealed all at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I think about the inventory steps, step four took a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves and step 10 continued to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Often when we talk about those steps and in, uh, in meetings or with other members of, of the program or sponsor, the, analogy or metaphor of an onion, peeling an onion, mm-hmm. and you peel off the outer layer of the onion and it reveals another layer. And as you peel that, it reveals another layer. Mm-hmm. This is certainly has been my experience in the program that this gradual revelation, as you say, the, the things that we're ready to understand. Right. This was really clear to me. I've done a, a formal inventory, I don't know, I guess three times mm-hmm. in in the years I've been in the program and I'm I'm doing it again right now. You know, the first time I thought, yeah, this is pretty complete. Okay, a lot of stuff here. The second time, I found new stuff mm-hmm. that maybe I wasn't ready to see. And then actually after that second inventory, which I was about 10 years into the program at that point, Mm-hmm. And it was really time, right? After that second inventory, I had to go back to the person I 
had done my fifth step was with step five admitted to God to ourselves and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. I had to go back to that person twice and say, um, so here's something more. So here's something more. Because even 10 years in, I wasn't ready to fully admit those particular events in my life and the effect that they had had on me. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the program lets us come to these things when we're ready for it, but also gives us a structure that encourages us to move into the self-awareness, really. And, and you're right, it is self-awareness that is necessary to move out of denial. Yeah, I think honesty is is one of the things that we talk about. Honesty comes in the form of of outright lies. <laughs> But that was one of my biggest character defects coming into Al-Anon was a dishonesty by omission and a dishonesty with myself, fooling myself. And I guess that's a version of denial. But that is kind of how I thought of it when I came in, was that I was really not honest with myself about who I was and where I was in the world. I had, what is it? One of our intros or it's either the introduction or the closure. It talks about gaining perspective. Yeah. As we learn to see our problems in its true perspective or something like that. Right. Honesty, perspective, changed attitudes, Mm -hmm. acceptance, all of those things are, are key elements in the program and they all tie in with a resolution of denial, moving out of denial and moving into into this this growth that makes the life your life so much. I mean, my life is so much more valuable. It's so much more positive. Even when there's something that comes up now that's a that's a problem, I'm able to look at it. Keep fingers crossed. I don't know that I have anything I'm particularly in denial about right now. Mm. Because the pros taught me how to deal with things on a, on a daily basis. And I suspect that maybe whatever you're going to share with us will be something that perhaps you would have, you would have denied for a much greater time period. You know, I think that's part of it is that we, we catch ourselves a lot earlier. Yeah. As we're kind of moving towards an Al-Anon slip or slipping just a little bit, we're like, Oh, I can see I'm slipping just a little bit. (laughs) You know, we can catch ourselves earlier. We don't, we don't fall so far down the hill. Yep. So maybe this is the appropriate time to bring in a couple of more recent examples from my life. Uh-huh. One, and I, I have talked about this in the, in the program before, but it was a real sort of revelation to me recently about the n- denial that I had been in and the progress that I had made overcoming that denial and, and moving into acceptance and the effect that that had on my, the way in which I experienced part of my life over the last, I think two see, this is where denial comes that I don't really know when it started. I'll say two years. Mm-hmm. We, which is to say my siblings and I have become increasingly concerned about our father's, mental acuity. And in particular, initially it seemed to be 
memory issues, short-term memory issues. And, and since our mother already is in a place where she has fairly severe short-term memory problems, this was very concerning. They were living alone together. He was her caregiver, and if he was starting to have problems, then this was a real problem. Because if if he became unable to take care of her and unable to remember whether she had taken her medications for the day or even that she was supposed to and so on, this was going to be a real issue. I remember, like I said, it was probably a couple of years ago. We see them a couple times a year. They live 450 miles away, so I, I don't see them every day. But I remember we were there for a visit and... You know, my father was kind of like forgetting little things. And, and I thought, well, you know, this is the inner, this is the inner voice. This is the denial voice saying, well, you know, he's, he's old. I forget things. He's allowed to forget things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there was denial right there. Didn't want to admit it because the consequences of admitting that he had a problem were, going to be pretty severe. Mm-hmm. You know, we were going to have to figure out how to get them into some kind of care situation, mm-hmm. move them out of the house they retired to, which they really didn't want to move out of. So now it's, it's not a real problem. Okay. A year later, it's becoming more obvious that this is progressing. And somewhere along in there, my sister lived nearby And she was going with them to their doctor appointments because they weren't necessarily remembering stuff. They weren't, they were minimizing their symptoms, all that stuff that we do, right? Right. And so my sister would go so that she could, you know, both try to be a voice of uh, reality, but also to keep track of what they said, what the doctor said, et cetera. At some point in there, my father started to see this memory specialist that I think is the same one that had been seeing my mother. So they already had a relationship. You know, they did one of these basic memory tests and he did not score well. Okay, so here's like reality that really can't be denied. But, you know, they put him on, I don't know, Aricept or something and it seemed to help. So maybe it'll be fine. But along in there, the timeline is... I could reconstruct it if I needed to, but along in there, we're still worrying about how we're going to get care, right? And I think Mm -hmm. that because my mother had physical disability issues, they got a a care person to come in like once a week or something like that, and that, that was a help. And my brother decided to move from where he was living in California back to New York State to, to live with them and, and be their in-house caregiver for which I am immensely grateful. I could not do it. And he did have some experience doing that for people to whom he was not related. So it wasn't a totally out of the blue thing. And he got there at the sometime in May. And now we're really seeing the reality because he's there day to day. Uh huh. You know, for, and, and just a, a simple example of, of things that weren't happening or weren't happening right they were getting two phone bills, one for their landline and one for the cell phone. And somehow my father had it in his head that he had paid the phone bill when he paid the landline and he didn't pay the the cell phone. And so then I think they were getting dunning notices and stuff because he just didn't understand that there were actually two different bills for two different phones. 
And my brother was able to deal with that. And they actually just turned off the cell phone because they don't use it anyway. And I can see their lives contracting, shrinking, you know, which is sad. Um, but with all that kind of, here's some reality, here's some reality, here's some reality that, that I was getting. When we went to visit them this summer, just a couple of weeks ago, I found myself in a place of acceptance. Mm-hmm. I think partly because my brother being there significantly reduced the fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so with the fear not totally gone because, you know, we are losing them and I don't want to lose them and I'm afraid to lose them, but it's going to happen. I was able to move into acceptance and I found myself during that visit seeing him with a, a real childlike persona in an 89-year-old man. Uh-huh. That's some kind of, felt like some kind of miracle miraculous transformation, really, to be able to see him as he is, still little bits of fear here and there, but to to say, yeah, but he is who he is right now. And I can enjoy the person that he is right now, even as some of the behaviors irritate me. Right. You know, and some of those behaviors included more drinking than he used to do. Mm. But he's 89, for God's sake, you know? I mean, let him have a couple of scotches with dinner, and then he's going to fall asleep, but he's probably going to fall asleep anyway. When we visit in the summer, we always go to see a play with them. There's a local playhouse that that puts on, you know, pretty good performances. And and we went to see uh, Little Shop of Horrors, which was a a fun performance. Mm -hmm. That afternoon, we were told that my mother wasn't sure she felt like going. And my thought was, well, okay, that'll just make it a lot easier for us, right? Mm-hmm. <sighs> you know, where's that acceptance right there? No, that's not acceptance. That is, that is, I don't want to have to deal with this. But when the time came, they both went, and I think they enjoyed it. And the other, th- the, one of the things that I saw there was they've been going to this, this playhouse. I think they have season tickets for years, Right. The people there know them, and mm. I'm breaking up here, you know, exhibited so much love in helping them get to their seats and get out of their seats, and just, it was just beautiful. And if they hadn't gone, I would have missed that, you know? Yeah. There was a situation where I went from fear and denial to acceptance with a little bit of fear still. And it Mm -hmm. really changed the experience of the visit for me. Just really because when I was there in denial, there was always that niggling fear in the back of my head. There was always, you know, I'd see a symptom and, and I'd have to make it, you know, minimal, minimalize it. There's the word I'm looking for. And now I don't have to do that. Yeah. Life's so much easier when you don't have to do that. And, and really so much more serenity and happiness in the visit. There were other issues because family, you know, but 
And I think a real good example of how that came out was we, when we're visiting my parents, if we're there over a Friday, we always go to a Friday noon meeting in a nearby city. For the last several years, the topic that I always wanted to talk about in that meeting was my fear for my parents. And this time, that was not the, that was not the thing that was pressing on me. Again, it's like acceptance and removal of the denial made it, made a big difference. You know, I think you really nailed something there. I had written it in my notes, fear versus courage of self-exploration. And it's, and it's fear. Fear was another one of the big, huge character defects for me coming into this. But if you're going to be honest, it takes courage. And I was an extremely fearful person coming into Al-Anon. Fear is a, is a major factor, I think, in denial because it's, it is, what is it you say, catastrophizing the future? Living in the wreckage of the future, yeah. Yeah, and it's a future you don't, you don't know what it is. And if you're catastrophizing it, you're certainly probably making it worse than it's going to be. Or you're, you're, because you're denying it or you're, you're so fearful and turning away from dealing with it that, you know, much easier solutions might be there and you, you have no clue I think you really nailed it with fear being an integral part of the denial process. Certainly was for me, I think. Fear, shame. Mm-hmm. And there's something, there's another one there that I can't come up with right now, but fear and shame have definitely been factors for me. I want to talk about another place where I've had denial in my life recently, which is about my own health. So I think like a year ago, when I went in for my annual physical my doctor was concerned about my blood sugar. It was at the high end of pre-diabetic. So I did some work uh, on diet and so on, and we got that down to sort of the low end of pre-diabetic. And then a year passes, and I go in to see my doctor, and boom, I'm, I'm up in the diabetic range with my A1C which is a measure of blood sugar over the last three months, roughly, an average sort of. She said, well, I'm going to prescribe some medication. You need to adjust your diet, and you need to get exercise. You need to lose weight. More importantly, you need to lose weight. And and if you can do that, we'll probably get it down. And I was like, nah, you know, I can't be diabetic. I'm not diabetic. It's just it's just a blip. Mm. You know, it's because I haven't been taking care of my health recently. I've been doing some stress eating and so on, and 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 we'll 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 fix this thing. Mm-hmm. So once that diagnosis gets in your medical record, like it's there, it does not go away. Mm-hmm. I went back in three months, and I had lost some weight, and I had uh, adjusted, you know, my my sugars intake, and I was back down below the diabetic number, but still fairly high. My doctor came in with this big smile on her face. She says, yeah, you did it. I'm like, yeah, okay, we're, we're, we're getting this thing. Okay, I don't have to worry about it. And then a couple of weeks later, something like that, I went into the hospital for my surgery. And they're like all over me with this diabetic diagnosis. They're like, you need to deal with this. You need to address this thing. And maybe they do this for everybody who's had surgery, or maybe they only do it for people who's who already have a, a pre-existing, I don't know. But before I could eat 
every time before I could eat, they had to take my blood sugar. At one point, nurse comes in and says, here's some insulin for you. I'm like, um, okay. So I don't think I'm at the acceptance point yet, but I'm definitely at the the reality point, right? It's like, yeah, okay, this is real. And I need to, I need to get on top of it. I need to, I need to really do the action now, which is going to involve almost bought a blood sugar meter, but they didn't have the test strips for it. It turns out then I went online and looked at reviews for that particular meter and they were uniformly negative. And I'm like, well, I'm glad I didn't buy it. (laughs) But you know, it's like, yeah, okay, I need to be testing it. I need to continue to follow up with my doctor. I have an appointment in, in September. I probably need to meet with a dietitian to really talk about what are the goals of my diet? You know, what are the, the sugar, protein, et cetera, um, ratios. So I'm just coming in out of the, there was, it was mild denial. Like I kind of knew it was a problem, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to admit it was a problem. I was mm-hmm. doing something, but I wasn't really like doing what I should do, all the things that I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, you know, reality came uh, and and smacked me upside the head and said, "No, you need to pay attention to this," because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when when the you know the the care staff in the hospital, like every time you turn around is like taking my blood sugar and everything. I'm like, okay, they're a lot more worried about this than I am, and probably that's my problem, not theirs. I'm like, okay. Let's let's pay attention. Let's be more on top of this thing. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for my life? It means that, yeah, I've got some anxiety about this, but I also have things I can do. Mm-hmm. And I sort of knew that I had things I could do, but the denial was, you know, I have this head in the sand thing. If I ignore the problem, it'll go away. Mm-hmm. And that very often doesn't work, but I persist in the delusion that it might. So now I'm aware. My wife's aware. I hadn't talked to her about it. That's also, I think, a symptom of the denial. Mm-hmm. So we're moving out of it. We're moving into reality and we'll see where it goes. Um, but hey, I'm talking about it, right? Like, you know. <laughs> Uh, I was not, I, I, that word had not passed my lips since my doctor's appointment. No, but you have talked about it a lot over the last couple of years. Blood sugar, not diabetic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's the difference between drinks too much and alcoholic, right? (laughs) Maybe. So I think, I think there's a reason we're talking about denial right now, at least for me. Right. We've talked about some tools that we have found to to mm-hmm. combat denial, to to bring ourselves out of denial, into and to me, I think the opposite or the the where we get to is acceptance, and I've said that before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the one that that immediately comes to mind is what was sometimes referred to as the three A's, which are awareness, acceptance, and action. Mm-hmm. And you you said, well, it's hard to have denial without having some level of awareness, right? Right. Moving from denial into acceptance, sort of, okay, that's the coming out of denial part. And we have tools to get us there, which we will talk about. But once I'm in acceptance, then hopefully I have some clarity 
My vision is no longer clouded, as that gift says. Right. I can see courses of action that I can take to address the thing that I was in denial about somehow. And they might be things for me. They might be things just for me to change the way that I move into, that I see, that I experience what's going on. Like with my parents, I mean, there's nothing I can do about their health. There are things they can do. There are things I can encourage them to do, but there's nothing I personally can do, right? Mm-hmm. So what is the action that I take? Well, the, the action that I take is really, so far, partly it's working with my siblings to help determine a, 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 a good course of care that they can negotiate with our parents, right? Partly it's working on myself to bring myself to that place of seeing them as who they are and to be able to be with the people they are. And that that's the action I can take there. Yeah, and I, I like the idea with acceptance. And we've talked about um, the three A's before, and, and I don't know if it was in our conversations or I'm re-listening to all the podcasts I just listened to Ajit's open talk this morning. It's important to sit in acceptance also. That as we move from awareness into acceptance, that that is part of a process. It's not something that you jump over. Oh, I accept it. Zoom right into action. You know, there's, there's an important part of the process is that acceptance. And I think that's kind of, it can take time and I, it's, you know, a lot of what you've spoken about this morning is this, this process of gradually accepting, gradually coming to a full appreciation of what a situation is. And then once you fully really understood it, then, then those actions are natural. I think they're more natural. Like you spoke of with your father you know, suddenly being able to see, oh, he's being childlike and accept it and just appreciate it and be with him for who he was at that moment. Yeah. And that actually brought to mind a friend of mine in the program adds a fourth A, and I've actually been trying to think of what his fourth A is. And I'm not positive, but it's something like this, awareness, acceptance, alternatives, action. Uh-huh, okay. And and I think that goes with what you're saying about sitting in acceptance, that we don't just jump straight from acceptance to action. Back in the day, I would have jumped straight from awareness to action. Yeah. At least putting some acceptance in the middle there, you know, delays that, but really taking time to understand whatever it is in its fullness so that I can see what the alternative actions are and, and choose an, an appropriate one may also right. be important. Yeah, don't just do something, stand there. Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. We talked about self-awareness in a lot of the cases, I think, for me, that's that's critical, and I think you said that. And I come to self-awareness in the steps through the inventory. Mm-hmm. I can do a full inventory, which, as I said, I've done a few times, but more commonly, I'm doing inventory on some particular event, some particular feeling, and sort of saying, what's really going on here? What is 
what is my part, what is not my part. And that again is, is this clarity, getting some clarity, getting some acceptance is, you know, I know I've said this before, but when I came into the program, that inventory step was something I just did not ever want to do. And now it is such a tool. Yeah, that's, that's really true. And it's, I mean, the more I use it on using in a step 10 way, the more I really love it because it's, it makes life so much easier when I'm not reacting to something that somebody else said in a negative way, when I can simply be open and say, okay, this is feedback. You know, what does that mean for me? And, you know, what's my part? How can I change that? It, it just makes it so much easier. It's so much more work to, to be resisting being open. And it's so much more work to be in denial. You know, I wrote down here, one of the real important tools, and I think this is kind of really pre awareness or goes uh, hand in hand with awareness. When you're, when you're talking about these really big things that you're kind of resisting is listening to my inner voice or my gut. I almost always, if I, if I have a gut sense about something, if I pay attention to that, it's, it's really wise. It is that quiet voice of God that we talk about sometime. And that you wrote supportive higher power and, and, and absolutely the, the ability to face these things. This is a really tough stuff that we're talking about in terms of, of denial and the kind of things that we deny are, are not inconsequential. And we need the support of, of our sponsors, but we also need the support of our higher power. And that higher power is there for me all the time. I love to be able to call my sponsor, but the beauty of the program is that I have that support of my higher power 24-7. That is true. One of the aspects of the way in which I, at least I see the higher power being present in the steps is there's no promise in there that my higher power is going to fix my loved ones. My higher power is going to make my problems go away. Right. The promise in there is that my higher power will support and love me and will try to guide me to what is best for me given the reality rather than trying to change the reality. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, some of the resistance that I had throughout much of my life about higher power God was this prevalent notion that we could pray for God to change the world. And I just had a really hard time accepting that. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't see it happening mm-hmm. in my life. You know, the, the please God give me a pony type prayer never worked for me. You know, I never got the pony. And what the, the program doesn't, say that I'm going to get a pony. The program says that if I put my trust and my life into the care of my higher power, that I can get through, that I can have a more serene life, that I can change. You know, that's step six and seven. Step six and seven are about me putting my trust in a higher power to help me change myself. 
there's no promise in there that that my loved one's going to get better, that my loved one's going to get sober. There's no promise that my parents are suddenly going to regain their health and and live forever. And I'm glad there isn't there because if that was there, I wouldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Right. But I can have this support that I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. That no matter what happens, I can be okay. And that, I think that helps with the fear. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if my parents leave me, which they will, and look at the way, the self-centered way I put that, they leave me, right? If my parents die, which they will, I can be okay. Mm-hmm. I can be sad. Mm-hmm. I can feel grief. I can express grief. I can not want it to happen, but I can be okay. And I think that that helps to reduce the fear and other emotions that are supporting the denial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the last tool I wrote here was compassion. And it's kind of going to the, the twist of, you know, denying something, withholding something. And I think we oftentimes deny our love from our alcoholics in our lives. We get really angry. We withhold love from them and we withhold love from ourselves. And I think the compassion that's taught in the program allows us or prevents perhaps is a better way of putting it, prevents us from, from making that choice to withhold when we have compassion for ourselves or for others. Mm-hmm. It allows us to, What's the word I want? It allows to love without rules or requirements attached to it. Mm. Yeah. And I want to actually connect that back to higher power because the feeling of unconditional love that I receive in the program, which is one of the ways in which I feel the expression of a higher power through the, the love that people in the program give to me when I feel like I don't deserve it. Hmm. When I felt like I didn't deserve it. When they didn't even know me. Right. You know, in my first meeting, I felt that love and acceptance. Yeah. I, you know, I, how was that there? I mean, these people don't know me, but somehow they love me already. I just, I didn't understand that. And now I see that as an expression of the love that our higher power has mm-hmm. through the people in the room through the people in the room that I didn't even know. But they, they accepted me as I was. Just so important. We've talked a lot. I've talked a lot, at least in the examples of how life becomes better when I accept reality. You wrote down some stuff here. I think we've covered, covered it all. You know, it, you mentioned serenity when we're, when we're, I mean, it's, comes back to that thing. Being in denial is a lot of work mm-hmm. and it's, and it's very unsettling and it's very fear-based. And when we stop being in denial and we're open to looking at what's going on and seeing things maybe that we're not super wild about, then, you know, we net so much. We definitely become more serene. Choices become evident, you know, because we're we have a loss of fear. And so we become more aware of choices that we have. We can change our attitudes. 
If we're if we're not hiding our head in the sand, we we have the ability to see things in a way that allows us to change our attitudes consciously. I get a more accurate perception of who I am. And so then I can become the person I want to be. I'm not just an an actor out there pretending or, or even worse, somebody that thinks I'm something fabulous and wonderful. And, and it's like, no, I'm, I'm being very self-centered and, and disease ridden. And, and, you know, I come into recovery with it. And I, and I do think that it really helps catch slips much earlier. I hadn't even thought of that, what you just said, that when I came to Al-Anon, my attitude was that she's the one with the problem, mm-hmm. that she needs to fix her problem, then everything will be okay. I'm not the one with the problem. And that, that, that denial, <laughs> that denial of, uh, that I had, that I could do anything for myself to change the way I felt to change the way I acted was what kept me from coming to the program for, for a long time. Cause I didn't think I had a problem. I denied that I had a problem. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I've said those words, although I don't think I've ever used the word denial in conjunction with that. Just that I was not the one with the problem, but wow. Yeah. Having a perception of myself that yes, I contribute. I contributed to the chaos in our house, that it was mm-hmm. not a one-way street. Mm-hmm. That was right. huge. That was huge. And and sort of continues as I peel those layers off the onion. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. I want to close here with the thought for today from the reading on page 138 and Hope for today. It was the May 17th reading, I believe, right? Right. It's a short one. It says, Today I let go of my denial, face the truth, and celebrate my recovery. And there's a quote, which is taken from Courage to Change. Denial is a symptom of the effects of alcoholism. Very true. After a short break, we will continue with our lives and recovery. We talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. Our first musical selection, which you can listen to on the website at the recovery show slash 253 is by Anna Graceman and it's called living in denial. (laughs) It's just perfect. Um, that the lyrics are just great. You act like everything's good and fine, but we both know he darn well crossed the line. My heart aches for you because all the pain that you've gone through, but you don't act phased at all. If you keep it all locked up, one day it might explode, but you know I'll be your backup. If you're ever head down that road, I'd expect that you'd be shook up, but none of it has showed. Because you're living in denial. Because you're living in denial. Always wear a smile, and all of your troubles, they end up in a pile. I know it might take a while to realize you're living in denial. No kidding. Yeah. That's, that was, oh my God, that was me before I walked through the doors. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of pain there that I just, yeah, suppressed. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives and recovery, what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. Pat, you want to start? Sure. 
gosh, it's been kind of a busy week. It was a very busy two weeks and a lot of things did not go as planned. So the bottom line is being having learned at Al-Anon to go with the flow and not be rigid and be flexible and kind of one one day at a time it made all the difference in the world because it was fairly serene through the whole time. I did get to go to a meeting last night that I had changed from nighttime meetings to morning meetings. So I hadn't seen these folks in a long time, years. And that was really interesting. And at that meeting, it was an interesting lead. And the person doing the lead was talking about admitting and how admitting is in three different major steps. I mean, three different steps are all major. Step one, admitted we we're powerless over alcohol. Step five, admitted to ourselves and uh, another human being in our higher power, the exact nature of our wrongs. And then step 10 is continued to take personal inventory. And when we we're wrong, promptly admitted it. And that was kind of, it was a, it was a cool conversation and denial came into play with those because of course if you're busy admitting then you're busy not denying something so that was a word that was actually spoken in that room many times last night I met with my sponsor for the last two Fridays and that was really nice that's that was exceptional also my husband's been out of town on two trips and it's extremely rare for him to be out of town so things have been very cattywampus in terms of not the regular schedule by any stretch of the imagination. And then a little bit of an Al-Anon victory, couple of them. One was just at work, you know, coming in and, and getting assignments that were just not what I expected. And I was just really having a pity party and feeling sorry for myself. Thanks to the program, it, it didn't take long for me to recognize that that I was really just feeling sorry for myself. I wasn't particularly being very professional. I was whining and it was completely unnecessary and really kind of imposing on the other people around me. It's part of the job. I should expect it. It's, it's a reasonable expectation. And once I figured that out on the third day where it happened again, so it happened three days in a row and it hasn't happened for years. On the third day, I was able to go, okay, this is what it is. I can have a good attitude about it. And it, and it become, it became much more positive. So that was really a victory. And then the other thing is one of my kids called and was really upset, had made a little bit of a mistake and was really fretting about the consequences and, and going off into all kinds of extreme statements what a joy to be able to not ever say the word Al-Anon, but man, I don't think anything came out of my mouth that wasn't good, basic Al-Anon stuff. You know, well, let's take care of it just right now. What can you do right now? What choices do you have? What, you know, what can you do to prevent this in the future? This is not, you know, the end of the world, but talking about choices, I can't even remember all the things I said, but I just remember hanging up the phone and thinking, I don't think I had a single word of my own in there. It was all straight out of the Al-Anon program. <laughs> and what a joy because, because they texted me later. Wow. Thanks. That really made a difference is exactly what I needed. Super appreciated. And, and wow. I mean, that was, 
that could not have happened before I got into the program. I, I would not have had any of the tools at my disposal to then hand over to them. So oh, it's, it's, it's been a very um, busy and interesting Al-Anon week. Okay. Well, <laughs> I talked, I talked about a fair amount of the stuff that happened this week already, but let me think. I made it to a meeting on Sunday, um, which I sorely needed after spending a week with family. I really don't remember what the topic was. I just remember being glad I was there. Monday was sort of a day between vacation and surgery, and I went into work partly because I didn't want to burn a vacation day that I might need later to, as part of the, uh, you know, I don't know how long it's going to be before I get back to work, right? So save up those vacation days so I can I can use them if I have to. And I went into work, and so I hadn't been there for a week. A lot of stuff had happened. I had 300 and something emails in my inbox. And there had been a some kind of a semi-crisis event the night before that I had to help unpack. And so it was a fairly busy day. A lot of people were like, what are you doing here? I thought you were out. I'm like, well, I'm saving myself a vacation day in case I need it later. Being there only for a day, I couldn't really pick up anything and start it. I couldn't intervene in things that were already in progress because I was going to be gone, right? So it helped me to see how much really the trust that I have in my team is merited, you know, how much they were, they were capable of and, and just doing without me being there to tell them the right way to do it. And, you know, that kind of hurts a little, but it's also like feels, feels pretty good <laughs> in, in, in the perspective that I'm not going to be there. Right. Right. To have confidence that, that things are going to go well while I'm gone. And, and so just sort of <laughs> dropping in, and and then dropping back out without having to feel like oh my god oh, I have to I have to do this I have to, I have to you know it was good and then uh, you know Tuesday was surgery and I just had to put myself in the hands of mm-hmm. of the people who were there mm-hmm. I was able to see my doctor before the surgery so that was good I wasn't sure if I was going to see him or not. And he came by and we, we chatted and I, I said to him, it is going to be you drilling these holes in the bone right next to my nerves, right? And he said, yeah, I'll be doing that part. (laughs) Those will be my hands. I'm like, thank you. You know, when I came out, then there were people there that were taking care of me. And one of the things that I really appreciate, appreciated and appreciate in medical staff is how just straightforward and accepting they are of things that to me could be frightening, embarrassing or whatever. And they're just like, yeah, okay, we'll do this. We, you know, this is what we have to do now. And sometimes it's not something that I want to have happen, but it, it happens. And that, that, that happened to me and that in, in one case where, you know, my body just wasn't, wasn't working quite right in one aspect and they're like well okay we're gonna have to do this other thing and and it's going to be uncomfortable for you uh, but you know we have to do it and they did it and it motivated me to you know try to do a little better next time whatever it was that i thought oh my god this is you know how can i do this and they're just like this is what it is 
it is what it is, you know, and, and we're here to help you, and, you know, just push that button. And, and I did push that. The first night I was there, I couldn't really get out of bed. I was all hooked up to wires and tubes and stuff, right? And, and so whenever I had a, a need of a bodily function, which I did because they were pumping me full of liquids from the IV tube, I had to push the button and get help. I had to ask for help. <sighs> this is so hard. It also was, was not so hard because they just, it was, you know, it was what they were there for. I felt like at least that's the impression they gave me. Okay. You know, and I know they're there for a lot of people at the same time. And, and if I pushed the button and it took a few minutes for somebody to come, that was okay. It was not, you know, I didn't need somebody right now. Where have you been? A big week of practicing acceptance mm. of where I am in my recovery, where my body is in my recovery Mm -hmm. and celebrating really, really minor victories. You know, the ability to, to sit up for an hour or go to the bathroom by myself, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. It, it helps me really. I think it, it, it was a lot easier to do it with the tools that I've gained in Al-Anon of acceptance of, seeing reality for what it is of, you know, awareness, acceptance and action, understanding what are, what are the actions I can take and what are the, what the actions that I can't take. And I would love to be able to go back to work right away. I love my work. And of course they can't do it without me. Right. (laughs) I can't go back to work. And although I feel like I should be able to Yesterday, like I said earlier, I think I pushed myself a little hard. I spent too much time sitting up. By the end of the day, I was in a lot of pain. Today, I'm doing it differently. And I'm not in a lot of pain. Go figure. I I need to understand what my ability is right now. And I need to just, you know, have faith that I will get to the place I need to be when I'm able to get to it, things will happen in God's time, as we often say, not in my time. If it was my time, I'd be back to work tomorrow and I'd be miserable. But for some reason, the HR department wants a letter from my doctor that I'm released to go back to work. I don't know. (sighs) I, I understand it, you know, because they don't want me coming back and having a relapse, right? They don't want me coming back and suddenly... They might have been through this once or twice before. It's not their first rodeo. <laughs> they might have been through this once or, once or twice before. I am going to a meeting tonight. My meeting that I would have gone to yesterday morning was canceled because there was another function in the church where we meet. And I had been on the planning committee for a district-wide open talk on the subject of intimacy that we'd been planning for several months and I was on the planning committee and it happened yesterday afternoon. And I just, I texted uh, the other people on the committee and said, look, I can't be there. I I don't have the stamina to sit in an uncomfortable chair for an hour and a half. Right. And this is reality. And I felt okay about it. I would really love to be there. I hear it went well. It is what it is, as we say. So I'm going to a meeting tonight and I had to, actually texted one of my sponsees and said, hey, can you give me a ride to the meeting tonight? And he said, sure. Can I ask for help? You know, I'm not allowed to drive. Right. For two reasons. One is I can't turn my neck very far. And the other reason I'm taking these opioids and they tend to impair your judgment and ability to drive. So, yeah, I have to ask for help. 
So all that's program in one way or another. Mm-hmm. <sighs> in all our affairs, right? In all our affairs, exactly. So we welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation. Leave us a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback or your questions. And Pat, how can people do that? Uh, you can call um, 24-7 and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. That number again is 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or questions about today's topic of denial or any past topics. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Well, that would be on the website, which is therecovery.show. We have all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, an occasional blog, links to the music that we talk about in the show, links to some other recovery podcasts and websites as well. And also on that website at therecovery.show slash contact or in the menu at the top of each page, there's a contact link. You can find all of the ways that you can contribute to the conversation that we have here. And you found us another piece of music. I did. If Of all things, this is called Self-Awareness Rap. It's by Diamond Lynn. It's to the music of Lauren Hill's Lost One, which makes me wonder about quite how legal it is, but I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, the, the hip-hop community does that all over the place. I assume they do it legally. Oh, okay. At uh, any rate, it was pretty, it was, it's fun because I'm not usually a rap person and it's, it's pretty perky. Some of the lyrics are self-awareness, the state of being self-aware, knowing who you are, all your dreams and all your fears. Not being afraid to fail or even shed some tears because all these things, they come just to make you more aware because really who in this world can tell me about me? It's funny how I let other people try to run me, beat up, beat down and steal everything from me. Forgot who I was till I realized what had become of me. Now I'm bringing it back. Look at me. So lovely. Hmm. And uh, I just... I just love that. It ends up really positive and, and it acknowledges that to become self-aware can be painful. And I, I think that's really important, but it is so worth it. We got a, a few emails this week. Jen writes, thank you for all that you do. This podcast has led me to Al-Anon. Both have been a life changer and a lifesaver without the slightest bit of exaggeration. Ever grateful, Jen. I'm just going to say I'm always grateful to hear that we're having a positive effect in people's lives because that is why we're here. Penelope wrote about the interview I did for Northern Spirit Radio. You can find a link at Episode 251 at therecovery.show slash 251. She writes, Spencer, the interview was excellent, a very clear and honest explanation of Al-Anon's benefits. I hope your surgery and rehab go smoothly. Best wishes, Penelope. And, and thank you, Penelope. 
and that was a fun, that was sort of a fun thing to do because I was not talking to people who are in the program. And I was talking about how Al-Anon Recovery has benefited me and how I, how I created the podcast to bring that message to other people. But their audience for that Northern Spirit Radio broadcast is, I think, mostly not Al-Anon people, mostly not people in a 12-step program already. Mm. So it was, it was interesting and it was fun to try to put the message hopefully in a way that it would connect to people who, who aren't here yet, but maybe want to be here. They just don't know it. Just a, a comment on the interview. I, I really thought it was extremely well done. I had never heard of a surrender date. That was a new term. Nobody, nobody around here really talks about surrender dates. That's not a common term. So that was interesting. I think I might have made that up. Oh, <laughs> if I remember correctly, I was I was on Mark's uh, recovered podcast at one point, and and I think we were talking about birthdays, AA birthdays in particular, and and he said something about my serenity date, and I said, no, I would not call it a serenity date. That was not the date when I found serenity. It was the date when I surrendered. So I guess it's a surrender date. So I've been using that term because. I know for me, that was that day. And if other people want to pick it up or if somebody else has already said it, that's wonderful. Okay. So Kelly writes with a question and a topic. Spencer, I would love some info on dealing with infidelity and the alcohol addict, emotional affairs and social media. This has been a struggle for me from the beginning and continuously through the years even though my partner, the father of my youngest son, has been clean but no real program or recovery for 20 months. It seems connecting with women, especially on social media, has become yet another vice in his life and another obstacle for me to obsess over. It is so painful and debilitating, and yet I can't see to let him go. He insists I'm, quote, crazy, and I'm making it all up in my mind, which is truly insane when social media and phone records clearly document his endless supply of female friends. And yet I continue to stay in the relationship with him. My self-esteem around this issue is severely damaged, and I'm finding it impossible to free myself. Would love to hear a discussion about how other women have dealt with these affairs, emotional or physical, and how they have freed themselves from this prison. Thanks, Kelly S. I don't know if you have anything you can share with Kelly. Yeah. Part of it is when I read something that's that specific, I I find myself thinking about, about program in general and that that is similar to a lot of other prog- problems that come up within the program. Essentially, behavior, you know, is a behavior acceptable? If it's not acceptable, how do I set boundaries mm-hmm. and how do I make sure that those boundaries are, are realistic and that they have consequences that I'm willing to follow through on. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really the work of working with a sponsor, I think, and maybe bringing it up in a local meeting as a topic in a local meeting. Cause there's, there's, 8 million different specific scenarios. And I think that's the beauty of the program is that we can take any 
individual and find a, a broader way of approaching that problem. That would be my thought. Yeah. And I guess if, if I, if I do broaden it out like that, my wife, when she, after she came to sobriety, spent some years working through sort of other addictions, whether mm-hmm. it was shopping, whether it was computer games, those were difficult for me. They didn't have the added emotional charge of feeling that she was leaving in some sense. But that that also could be, you know, a factor here. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. That it, it is because, you know, the addict mind, in my experience, which is, is limited, but in my mind, the addict, the addict mind wants to find something. And that's what a lot of what, I have seen in AA recovery from my wife in particular that she's had to get to the core of what it is she's trying to fill in herself by these other activities mm-hmm. that was at one time filled by alcohol or at least covered up by alcohol. And that I think is, is really what, you know, a lot of what the 12 steps are about. Mm-hmm. I'm finding out who we are and filling you know, you've heard the expression, I'm sure, a God-shaped hole. Right. That comes up a lot in, in recovery circles. You know, I was trying to fill that God-shaped hole with other people. I was trying to fill that God-shaped hole with alcohol or with heroin or with shopping or with sex. That is a thing that happens. So I don't know. But yeah, for Kelly, also, like what you said, that getting in with getting in with a sponsor, going to meetings can help helped me with my side of those things helped me with my emotional reactions to those things helped me to, to keep my balance. Mm -hmm. It helps put things in perspective and I can't remember which podcast it was, but somebody talked about how I can do this thing for one day. So if she's not sure where she wants to go with her relationship with this person, she can for one day stay in it, one more day stay in it, and and make a decision that's a good decision for herself that may change tomorrow. But but for that one day, you know, can can the one day be okay? Is she able to stay there for that mm-hmm. one day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for three and a half years after I came to Al-Anon, my wife continued to have her affair with alcohol. That was how I got through at the beginning was, can I do this today? Right. I can do this today. I'm not ready to leave today. Mm-hmm. And when I came in, as I have said before, I was caught on the horns of this dilemma that I thought there was two possibilities. I would leave or I would continue to live in misery with an alcoholic. Right. Neither of those outcomes were something I wanted. Mm-hmm. The people in the program said to me, you can, you can, you know, you can just stand there. You don't have to make a decision right now. Right. And so, yeah, today I can get through today. I can get through. And, and I did that for a couple of years until I had enough of the tools of the program in me. I had enough serenity in my, in my personal life and strength to say yes, well, and recognition that yes, I wanted to stay, 
to be able to say, yes, I can stay. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't right away. So, yeah. We got a um, voicemail from Jenna. Hi, my name's Jenna. I'm calling from Buffalo, New York. I just listened to your podcast episode where you were on the AA podcast, and I'm a double winner. So it's definitely my favorite podcast episode of yours. Um, I listen to your podcast and as much Al-Anon information as I can um, at home because I spend so much time going to AA meetings, and I only get that one Al-Anon meeting a week. So I really appreciate your podcast. I'd love more episodes like that with a crossover as a double winner. It was very, very helpful to me. Thanks so much. And thank you, Jenna. You know, we have talked about doing a double winners episode and, and it's one of those that I haven't put together. I think I even have volunteers who would say, yeah, I would do that. So we'll definitely we'll do that because I don't know about, you know, the program where you are, Pat, but many of the people in my Al-Anon rooms, I don't want to say percentage or something, but are, are double winners that they, they have come to Al-Anon after you know, dealing with their personal addiction, and now they're dealing with the addictions of their friends and relatives and find they need Al-Anon. I think there are particular challenges there that I don't personally have. Right. Double winners are welcome in our in our rooms here. I do appreciate the guidance that came from, what's the monthly little magazine thing? The forum? Yeah, the forum. That said, it's important that, and some of our greetings just say, hey, if you're in another 12-step program, remember you're at Al-Anon and stay focused on your Al-Anon program while you're here. That's that's the only restriction. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And some of my meetings, one of my meetings reads essentially that statement at the beginning of every meeting. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the meetings that I go to even semi, all of the meetings I go to regularly and the ones I go to semi-regularly are all co-located with AA meetings. Mm-hmm. And so we more or less frequently get what I might term drop-ins. And they're like, I thought I'd come here tonight instead of the AA meeting. Okay. And sometimes they stay and a lot of times they don't. They almost always express that they, they needed something that we had that, that the other meeting didn't have. And as long as, and sometimes, you know, might have to talk to somebody after the meeting and say, look, if you're going to come here, please focus on the Alanine issues, not on your sobriety. Right. Because that's not why we're here. Right. I don't have to do that very often or somebody in the meeting may do that. It's not always me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It happens. You want to read Lisa's? Short message. Lisa asks, hi, can you tell me where on your site I can find the letter from God to a mom about her alcoholic son and letting go? Thanks, Lisa. And boy, does that come up a lot. That letter is really popular, huh? Yeah, I sent I sent the link to Lisa. It is on the website in at least a couple places. I, there's a link in episode 248, the notes for episode 248, which is at therecovery.show slash 248. And you want to scroll down until you find the section entitled links and you'll find it there. I'm, I'm thinking about whether I want to try to elevate that link to a, a higher level somehow. And I'm not exactly sure how I would do that on the website, but thinking about it because you're right. Almost like every other episode, I get at least one message from somebody saying, Hey, can you tell me how to find that thing again? Right. It was definitely was strong. 
message that an important message. Mm-hmm. Got an email from Mary Francis who writes, a bonjour slash hi. I'm a very big fan of your podcast. Spencer and Eric have unknowingly been helping me in somewhat difficult times. In my opinion, the recovery show is the most helpful podcast available to people who are in recovery. Many thanks from the Frenchmen of Quebec, Canada. Thank you, Mary Francis, for writing. Um, most helpful. I will take that as a, as a statement of your belief <laughs> and, and try to squash down my imposter syndrome response. And Byron left a comment on the Sober Speak episode, which is the recovery show slash 252. Thank you for creating your podcast. I'm a few years sober. I value and appreciate the way you cover the subtle nuances of the ins and outs of addiction recovery and the affected family members. That was from Byron in Los Angeles. Again, thank you, Byron. So I'm experimenting. A a number of people have written in asking about transcripts. And I'm experimenting with a service that is reasonably inexpensive that will automatically generate transcripts that are reasonably accurate. I, I know a number of you have written in volunteering to uh, to help with transcripts. I'm going to be asking some of you to to try this out where I will generate a transcript and then um, I can send you a link to to edit it as much as you feel it needs to be edited. And we'll see how this goes and and if it works out, we can start posting transcripts of the episodes on the website, which can be helpful, I think, for maybe for searching, but also for people who have hearing problems, uh, as, as one of the writers brought up. That will increase our expenses, but um, you, you all have been generous enough that I'm feeling confident that uh, I can support this activity if it's something that turns out to be doable and helpful. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Debbie, Jen, Penelope, and Lucy did. We have put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link in the menu at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it. Whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, just direct them to therecovery.show or just listening to us. We are here for you. And I pulled out a third song selection from our episode four. Uh, The title is Cleopatra, Queen of Denial. It's by Pam Tillis, and it's a cute little song about, you know, how this woman's boyfriend is is not exhibiting the behavior that she thinks he should be, but she's sure that he still loves her, and that the the uh, the chorus goes, "Just call me Cleopatra, everybody, because I'm the queen of denial. Oh, queen of denial, buying all his alibis, queen of denial, floating down a river of lies." Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. We did not talk about a problem you are facing today. Feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.